Before this season, dogfighter slash Eagles quarterback Michael Vick was one of the most hated men in sports. He was vilified for his cruelty to animals. No one was as maligned as Michael Vick. In fact, he spent 21 months in prison for his crimes. And yet, isn't it amazing how one successful season and some charity work for the Humane Society can transform a man's image? I mean, this year, Vick is a candidate for the season's most valuable player. Six months ago, who would have thunk it? Well, in Luke chapter 19, we find a similar transformation. Trust me, the hatred that dog lovers had toward Michael Vick was tame compared to the animosity the citizens of Jericho had toward Zacchaeus, the tax collector. You know, even today, people who work for the IRS, they don't say so at parties. <laughs> but tax collectors in the Roman Empire, they were even more despised. The extravagances of Rome were funded by the taxes collected among the colonies of Rome. Rome would hire a local, provide him some military force, assign him a quota, and then let him pocket whatever he could collect above what he owed. And Zacchaeus was their man in Jericho. He was getting rich off the backs of his own countrymen. Only one thing could cause a man to absorb the ire of a whole community, and that was greed. Zacchaeus was a greedy man. More than respect from his peers or popularity or patriotism or even peace in his heart, Zacchaeus wanted to be rich. And he was making a, a real go at it. Among the Jews in Jericho, Zacchaeus' approval rating was just a little higher than Adolf Hitler. Yet at the end of the day, everything is going to change for Zacchaeus. The tax collector is going to go from greedy to gracious. He's going to experience a Michael Vick turnaround in the eyes of the public. And it's all because of his encounter with our Lord Jesus. And chapter 19 begins. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Notice he was the chief, or the arch tax collector. Zacchaeus was a big wheel in a corrupt system. He was the regional figure. He had underlings doing his work. This made him the most hated of all of the tax collectors. And he sought to see who Jesus was. I'm sure that Zacchaeus had heard a lot about Jesus. In fact, one of his colleagues... A Galilean tax collector was now a follower of Jesus. Levi's life had been so transformed by Jesus that he had gotten a new name, Matthew. Perhaps the two men knew each other. Matthew and Zacchaeus grabbing a falafel together for lunch. Matthew telling his story to his friend. Imagine that. Zacchaeus had heard enough about Jesus to risk seeing for himself. It was danger, dangerous for such a hated man as a tax collector to venture out into a crowd unprotected. And yet there was this strong longing in his heart for forgiveness and for freedom and for love and for acceptance and for purpose in his life. So much so that he combed the parade route looking for a perch from which he could look on and see Jesus. But 
He could not find a place because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. Well, you could say Zacchaeus was vertically challenged. He was a short guy, probably looked a little bit like Danny DeVito. That's kind of how I got him pictured. He was short of stature. The crowds around him were all taller. The crowds that lined the streets would block his view. No one would give him a good spot in line. They were all pushing him to the back. Remember, he was a tax collector. And so what did he do? He shimmied up a sycamore tree. On my first trip to Israel back in the early 90s, when you could actually stop in Jericho, we actually went to the center of town and we saw the supposed sycamore tree that Zacchaeus climbed. Zacchaeus goes out in search of a new life. He goes out on the limb, you might say, to see Jesus. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him. He may even have chuckled. I mean, it was a comical sight, really. A dignified city official, literally up a tree, out on a limb. And Jesus initiated the conversation. He said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today, I must stay at your house. And so he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. I suppose it had been quite a while since Zacchaeus had even smiled. Andrew Carnegie once said, millionaires who laugh are rare. My experience is that wealth is apt to take the smiles away. I've heard it put, money will buy a fine dog, but only love will make him wag his tail. Zacchaeus had all the money he could handle, but he was bankrupt when it came to love. That is, until Jesus came to his house. Joy and Zacchaeus were total strangers until Jesus came to his house. It had been a long time since anybody had even said a kind word to this man, let alone invited himself over for dinner, and yet that's what Jesus did. It, it reminds me of the three guys out in the life raft, stranded in the middle of the ocean. Suddenly a boat fly, floats by. And one of the guys grabs it, or, or reaches in the boat, and he finds a bottle in the boat. And so he grabs the bottle, and he rubs it, and out pops a genie. And the genie says, make one request. Each one of you three men can make one request. Well, the first man, he says, I wish I was back in Atlanta with all of my friends. Boom, presto, he's gone. Well, the second man, he, he rubs it and he says, well, I miss my girlfriend in California. Send me back into her loving arms. Boom, he's gone. Finally, the last fellow, he says, man, he says, I'm so lonely without my two buddies. I wish they were back here with me. Trust me, they were not happy campers. Zacchaeus was also a very lonely man. But when Jesus came into his life, so did joy. He received him joyfully. You know, in the ancient world, to enter a man's home, to break bread together with someone was the ultimate act of acceptance. You were taking from the same loaf. You were becoming one. Zacchaeus here is so overwhelmed by Jesus' show of grace that he won't, he'll want to follow him for the rest of his life. It was that overwhelming. It's amazing to me what just a little bit of love can do to revive a despised and broken heart, a depleted heart. Here a whole man's life changes on one invitation. 
Once it was a children's hospital. They employed a tutor who would actually come in and do work with some of the sick kids to help them keep up with school. One day, the English teacher called the tutor at the hospital and asked him to pay a visit to one of the students in the burn unit. He needed help with his grammar. When the tutor saw the child, he wasn't prepared for the severity of the child's condition. This young boy had severe burns over most of his body. And so he stumbled over his words. He, uh, uh, well, I'm the hospital teacher, and, and, and I heard you need some help with your nouns and your verbs. In fact, he was so embarrassed by his awkwardness that, that he kind of found the best way he could to sort of exit the room, and it was really kind of humiliating. I mean, why mention grammar to someone who's fighting for their very life? The next day, though, one of the nurses in the burn unit, they approached this tutor. And, and the tutor started to apologize, but the nurse turned to him and said, you know, you don't understand. We've been worried about that boy for a long, long time, but ever since your visit, his attitude has changed. He's fighting back now. He's responding to the treatment. It's as if he's decided to live. You know, later the boy himself explained, it dawned on me they wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and verbs with a dying boy. You see, his visit had given the boy hope. And this was Zacchaeus' logic. Jesus wouldn't want to visit the home of a hopeless cause, a hapless case. Evidently, he wasn't out of God's reach after all. No one is beyond the grip of God's grace. Jesus has designs even on rotten, greedy traitors and tax collectors like Zacchaeus. But when they, the Jews there in Jericho, when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. They didn't understand grace, did they? In the middle of the Monica Lewinsky scandal, President Bill Clinton, he reached out and he sought some spiritual advice from a man named Tony Campalo. Other Christians criticized Campalo for reaching out to the president. You know, why are you trying to help him? In fact, one pastor wrote him a letter stating, Don't you understand that this man does not deserve grace? And yet, by definition, grace is something we don't deserve. Grace is love that's on the house. Grace is love that you can never earn and never deserve. And this is the kind of grace that God showed, Jesus showed to Zacchaeus when he went and he entered his house. You know, but once grace is received, it has an explosive impact. Notice verse 8. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I, have, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Now here's outward evidence of Zacchaeus' inward transformation. He pledges half of his income now to charity. He vows to restore those that he's treated fourfold. You see, repentance is willing to repair the damage and make restitution that your sin has caused. After this kind of transformation, the Jews might have just voted Zacchaeus MVP. It was quite a turnaround. He certainly found God's forgiveness. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save 
that which was lost. Rather than condemn the Zacchaeuses of the world, notice Jesus comes to seek and save. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that that's what Jesus' intention for your life is? Not to condemn you, but to seek you out and save your soul. Well, verse 11 tells us, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Now this was a reoccurring misconception. In a few days, the crowds in Jerusalem, they're going to lay out palm branches across his path. They're going to hail Jesus, their Messiah. And they're going to expect Jesus then to lay out a plan for the overthrow of Rome and for a political revolution. But by midweek, the Jews are going to become disillusioned with Jesus and his response. So much so, they're going to cry out for his blood. Why? Because they wanted a visible, tangible kingdom. While God was bringing about a spiritual kingdom. Well, therefore, he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas. Now, mina was a quantity of money. Three months of a working man's wage was a mina. It was a sizable sum. And the man said to them, do business till I come. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Now in a sense, understand, we're living between verses 14 and 15. Jesus is the nobleman who has gone to heaven, a far country. But he's going to return. And when he does, we're going to give an account for what we did in his absence. Notice while the nobleman's gone, some of the citizens, they create an uprising. You know, they revolt against his reign. They challenge his authority. That's what's going on among people today. People are challenging Jesus' authority. They're revolting. They're doing things their own way. And they will be punished when he returns. We'll see that in the parable. Whereas the servants of Jesus, they are commanded to make investments for their master. And here are the words of Jesus to his servants and to us. Do business till I come. This is your commission in the world today, to do the Father's business. Jesus is coming back soon, but he doesn't want us bailing out on society. We're not supposed to quit our job or drop out of school or sell our belongings or move to a mountaintop just to wait on his return. Our job is to get down to business. Whatever business that God has called you to do, it's your job to get it done. It's been said, live as if Jesus were coming back tomorrow, but plan as if he weren't coming back for 10,000 years. It's true. Our future hope should motivate us, not paralyze our present. Well, then came the first servant saying, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. He had invested the money, and he had gained a tenfold return. This fellow managed to profit for his master. And here's his reward. He said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. 
Notice, faithfulness to God is rewarded with position and authority in the future kingdom that Jesus establishes on the earth. Those who stay at their post, those who do the Father's business, those who fulfill God's calling, you're going to be the mayors and the governors and the senators in God's kingdom when Jesus returns. If you're a faithful servant, you're going to reign and rule with Jesus. Those Christians who fall asleep on the job, they're going to end up the dog catchers. The garbage collectors. I'm putting in for mayor of Honolulu. I don't want to be the dog catcher in in Winder. Verse 18. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Again, faithfulness to God will produce authority in his kingdom. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Now, here's a servant who misread his master. His boss was known for his cunning and his cleverness. The servant's master was a risk taker. He was a shrewd businessman. And we need to make sure we don't misread our master. You know, Jesus is also known for his risky and radical maneuvers. What a risk it was that first Christmas to leave the halls of heaven and be born an infant in a sin-stained world. The Almighty became dependent on a teenage mom. That's pretty risky. I love G.K. Chesterton's comment on the incarnation. He writes, Alone of all creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of the Creator. Hey, Jesus was not afraid to take a risk to save us. And the Master here addresses his servant, verse 23. He says, why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Understand this principle. In the spiritual realm, the rich get richer and the poor get poor. When we use what God gives us, He gives us more. God wants us to be a pipe, a conduit, not just a tank or a pond. Blessings should flow in, but they should also flow out. What God gives us, we in turn should give and minister to others. Too many of us are a stagnant pond. Blessings are always flowing in, but nothing's ever flowing out. Jesus says, if you give, more will be given to you. But if you don't give, what you have will be taken away. An article appeared not long ago in the Los Angeles Times. It was written by columnist Ann Wells. Listen carefully. She says, my brother-in-law opened the bottom drawer of my sister's bureau and lifted out a tissue-wrapped package. He discarded the tissue and handed me the slip. It was exquisite. 
silk, handmade, trimmed with lace. A price tag with an astronomical sum was still attached. Jan bought this nine years ago on a trip to New York, he said. She never wore it. She was saving it for a special occasion. I guess this is that occasion. He took the slip and he put it on the bed with the other clothes we were taking to the mortician. His hands lingered on the soft material for a moment. Then he slammed the drawer and turned to me. Don't ever save anything for a special occasion. Every day you live is a special occasion. I remembered those words through the funeral in the days that followed. I'm still thinking about his words, and they've changed my life. I'm not saving anything. We use our good china for special events like losing a pound, or getting the sink unstopped, or the first camellia blossom. Someday, and one of these days, are fading from my vocabulary. It's, if it's worth seeing or hearing or doing, I want to see and hear and do it now. Every morning when I open my eyes, I tell myself, that is special. You see, here's the lesson. Hoard God's blessings and He'll take them from you. But use them for the good of others and for His glory. And He'll multiply those blessings. Jesus says, but bring here, or the nobleman in the parable says, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. And of course, this will be what happens when Jesus returns at the end of the age. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is going to return to this earth to crush his enemies like powder and rule them with a rod of iron. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to slay his enemies. Jesus is, is going to take charge. The least that we can do is to present him a return on the investment he's made in us. Well, when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he came near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet. Bethany now is on the east side of the Mount of Olives. It's just below the crest of the hill. As you top the hill, the Mount of Olives, you come down into Jerusalem. Bethany's on the other side. There he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose him and bring him here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And of course they said, The Lord has need of him. Oh, that we were like the owners of that colt and yielded whenever the master had need of us. Well, then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. In other words, they made this impromptu saddle. And notice the miracle here. Usually a young colt that had never been ridden is saddled up and stationary under the weight of its first passenger. That would never happen. Usually a young colt, a young donkey, would need to be broken and would need to be tamed first. But this donkey instinctively knows that he needs to submit to the master. He knows this is no ordinary rider on its back. 
Jesus is once again demonstrating his mastery over nature. Even the donkey remains submissive and remains at peace under his weight. Verse 36, And as they went, many spread their clothes on the road. You know, the other gospel said that they also lined the street with palm fronds. It was the Jewish equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. Jesus is getting the royal treatment. And then as he was now nearing, drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives. In other words, he's topping the hill now. And he's reaching that point on the top of the Mount of Olives where, where you look out and you can see this panoramic view of Jerusalem. It's right before your eyes. Jesus is right there at the top of the mountain. And the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The crowd begins to chant Psalm 118. It was a song written about the Messiah a thousand years before His arrival on this day. This was the only public demonstration that Jesus ever orchestrated. And he did it for a reason. He did it to fulfill prophecy. The date of this occurrence was April the 6th, 32 AD. And if you study Daniel chapter 9, you'll discover that this was a date that had been predicted by Daniel. The exact day Messiah presented himself to the nation Israel had been predicted by the prophet 500 years in advance. Here was Daniel's prophecy. He taught that 69 periods of 7 years or 483 years would elapse from the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until the presentation of the Messiah to the nation. Well, that decree came by the Persian emperor Artaxerxes, on March the 14th, 445 B.C. Now Daniel was using the Babylonian calendar that consisted of 360-day years. Thus, when you do the calculations and mark off on the calendar 173,880 days, you come to the date, April the 6th, 32 A.D., which was the exact day... We find here in Luke 19, when Jesus rode the donkey down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. Daniel had predicted the day 500 years in advance. The Jewish leaders should have known about Daniel's prophecy, his prediction and its date. To make sure his people didn't miss the crucial day, God had even added prophecies. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, there the prophet says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. All this was predicted ahead of time. You see, this was the day that the pieces of the puzzle should have fallen together for the Jewish leaders. God was affirming Jesus as his son. This was the day the Jews should have connected the dots. Instead, though, they just further hardened their hearts toward Jesus. Verse 39, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You see, the crowd, they were referring to Jesus as the Messiah. They were hailing him as their king. Jesus was basking in their praise. The Jews wanted him to rebuke them. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. 
Now, i got to tell you, I really wish the disciples had shut up for a minute or two because it would have been cool to really hear those stones start praising Jesus. Here, here you, would have, you would have had the original rolling stones rocking out for Jesus. I mean, this would have been some true rock music right here. I have some rocks from the Mount of Olives in my office, and I keep them there. And, I, and I'm just waiting to hear them burst out in praise at somebody. The only problem is, is I always beat them to the punch. That's why they stay silent. I'm too busy praising the Lord myself. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, this was the predicted day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Imagine this was their day, predicted five centuries in advance. God confirming his word through future prediction. Amazing. But when the day finally arrives, the most important day in the history of the Jews, their eyes were closed. They didn't see. And it caused Jesus to weep. He mourns over their stubborn hearts. Instead of relishing this glorious day, Jesus speaks of another ominous day. Verse 43. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now Jesus makes a prediction of his own. He looks ahead four decades to the year 70 A.D. The Roman army led by the general Titus Vespasian will invade Israel and he'll lay siege to the capital of Jerusalem. The attack will last 143 days. In the end, the temple gets burned to the ground. The once glorious city is reduced to rubble. An unbelievable 600,000 Jews were killed in the battle. Many thousands more were forced into slavery. Many of them killed for sport in the Roman amphitheaters. It was another holocaust for the Jews. And on the temple mount, not one stone was left upon another, just as Jesus said. In fact, if you go with us to Jerusalem today, you can visit the archaeological dig just south of the temple mount. It's known as the Southern Excavations. There today, in the ravine, just below the Temple Mount, sits a pile of huge stones that once made up the temple structures. The stones were thrown over the side of the mountain. They were toppled over by the Roman soldiers. The prophecy of Jesus was literally fulfilled. Not one stone was left upon another. The whole temple platform was leveled to the ground. As the story goes, the outside of the temple was overlaid with gold. So when the temple burned, the gold melted and it rolled into the cracks between the stones. Thus the greedy Roman soldiers, they disassembled the stones in order to loot the gold and take the gold out of the crevices and take it for themselves. That's why no stone was left upon another. They all were leveled to the ground. Verse 45, then Jesus went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. Boy, when Jesus saw these priests making a buck off God, it angered him. 
I mean, to pay the temple tax, the worshipers were required to swap their Roman coins for special temple shekels. But they had to do it at a hefty exchange rate. Or, in order to make a sacrifice, they had to purchase a certified lamb from the priestly herd. Again, at an exorbitant cost. It was all a scam. Jesus comes in, he sees this, and he cleanses the temple. This was the second time, by the way, Jesus cleansed the temple. He did it twice. The first time, he weaved a whip, and he used that whip to drive out the money changers. This time, he got so mad, he took them on with his bare hands. Jesus said to them, verse 46, It is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7. Isn't it interesting? A den is a place to relax. I think it's an indictment against the church when we become a place that tolerates people with the wrong motives. People trying to make a buck off God. They shouldn't be at ease among us. I think if we were a house of prayer, we might just weed out some of the crooks and drive off some of those who had the wrong motives. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. In 1966, the mamas and the papas, they had a hit song. This is before most of your time, but I remember it. They had a hit song called Monday, Monday. And the lyrics went like this. Monday, Monday, can't trust that day. On Monday morning, you gave me no warning of what it would be. That Monday evening, you would leave and not take me. Monday couldn't guarantee that Monday evening, you would still be here with me. The author of the lyrics was dumped by his girlfriend on Monday. Apparently, they'd had a wonderful weekend, but she left him on Monday. Well, in a sense, this is what happened to Jesus. On Sunday, Jesus rode his donkey into Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd. But by Monday morning, Jesus had confronted a whole different attitude. The Jewish establishment, they didn't appreciate him upsetting their temple trade. Jesus had threatened their prophets and their power. In fact, they grew so mad at him that they plotted to kill him. As in the song, a wonderful weekend and a glorious Sunday turned into a sad, treacherous Monday. Chapter 20 begins. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him. Now I like showdowns. High noon is my favorite time of the day. High noon at the OK Corral. Here, three bad guys walk into the temple to take on Jesus. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders. What follows is a guns blazing confrontation where Jesus mows them down. In verse 2, the Jews speak to Jesus, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? You see, the, Jesus had challenged the Jews' authority. He had said to them, what right do you have to turn my father's house into a den of thieves? Now they're picking up the gauntlet. Who are you to tell us what we should and shouldn't do? Where did you get your authority? 
It, it becomes a battle of clout. Of course, their question, like all questions that day, was a trap. Understand, authority was a touchy subject under Roman rule. If Jesus claimed divine authority, he could be painted as a potential enemy of Rome. If he said he lacked authority from God, then he'd lose credibility with the masses. Either way, Jesus answered, the Jews thought they had him trapped. But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? The Jewish authorities tried to put Jesus on the spot. Here, Jesus returns the favor. Notice verse 5. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. The master had outmaneuvered his enemies. And so they answered that they did not know where it was from. They had to play dumb in the end. In fact, by the end of the day, playing dumb wasn't difficult for them. Try to match wits with the master, and you end up the dim wit. It's amazing, throughout this day on Monday, the most brilliant minds in Judaism tried to spar with Jesus. They tried to argue scripture with its author. And when you do that, you're destined to lose. You don't want to argue theology with the theos. When you take on the original Bible answer, man, you end up proving how dumb you are. Well, Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's saying, if you're not going to go out on a limb to answer me, then why should I go out on a limb to answer you? Round one goes to Jesus. Well, then Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now, this was a common business arrangement in Israel. A landowner would transform a track of land into a vineyard, and then he would lease it to a vine dresser, expecting a percentage of the profits come harvest time. Well, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. This was horrible. The tenants had forgotten who are the tenants. I mean, they must have been drunk on the wine they'd produced by the way they treated the owner's servants. Well, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I mean, he doesn't want a wine. He wants to take some appropriate action. And so he reasons, I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. I mean, surely a visit from the owner's son will command their respect. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. Under Jewish law, any man could claim Ownerless property. They thought by killing the son, they could take ownership of the vineyard. And so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Suddenly it dawned on the Jews, Jesus' parable wasn't just a parable. It was also a prophecy. In fact, it was a prophecy that would be fulfilled within the week. Israel was the vineyard. Just a few feet from where this confrontation took place, carved grapevines adorned the huge doors of the temple. Israel was the vineyard. The Jewish leaders were the tenants. The owner's servants were the prophets who had been sent but rejected. The owner's son was Jesus. And after beating the prophets and trying to steal the kingdom from the Father, they now try to eliminate God's Son. Isn't it interesting here? A courageous Jesus is confronting the very men who at this moment are plotting his murder. They know exactly what he's talking about when he speaks to them. Notice verse 16. The owner promises to destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. You know, this was fulfilled historically when the Jewish establishment rejected the gospel that was preached to them by Peter in the early church. God sent the Romans to sack Jerusalem. We mentioned it. The year was 70 AD. And when the Romans sacked Jerusalem, they dismantled all the institutions of Judaism from priesthood to the temple. God's work in the world shifted from the Jews to the church. And by the second century AD, the fellowship of the church was almost exclusively Gentiles. God took the kingdom from the Jews and gave it to another. Verse 17, then Jesus looked at them. The the Greek word literally means he saw through them. He saw through them. He looked right through them. They responded to the parable by being aghast. Oh, certainly not. They'd never kill the owner's son. And yet that was exactly the treachery they were plotting in their hearts as they feigned their disapproval and mouthed their hollow words at the parable. He saw through them. And Jesus said, What then is this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? Here he quotes Psalm 118 verse 22. Again, it's a messianic passage that was attached to an ancient story. You see, construction of the temple was an incredible feat of engineering. Huge stones, some 20 feet thick by 40 feet long, were quarried north of Jerusalem. Then they were assembled on site there at the temple. They were so precisely sculpted that no mortar was used. But one of the stones, when it arrived, it seemed out of place. It didn't seem to fit. So the builders, they rolled it off the temple mount down into the Kidron Valley. Only when the temple was near completion was it discovered that the stone they had rejected was actually the capstone or the cornerstone. You see, this was the mistake that the Jews had made or were about to make with Jesus. They were plotting to destroy the cornerstone. Why? Because Jesus didn't fit. At the time, Judaism was about legalism and ritualism and self-righteousness and prejudice. Jesus was about freedom and love and acceptance and relationship. The Jews rejected Jesus. But now he has become the cornerstone, the linchpin of the church and of those of us who trust him. Verse 18 is an ominous warning. 
Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. If you come broken and humble to Jesus, if you surrender your will to him, if you fall on him, he'll lift you up. He'll give you power. But harden your heart and he'll fall on you. He'll grind you to powder. The question comes, power or powder? And it all relates to how you respond to Jesus. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. And they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. If the shoe fits, wear it. And they did. They were seething in anger. They knew that he was calling them on the carpet. But it gets worse. This showdown isn't over. The beatdown Jesus gives them continues in the, next, in the rest of the chapter. And we'll get to that next time.